Good morning, everyone. We are going to continue our study through systematic theology. Uh, we are heading through and finishing up pneumatology today, the study of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray for us and ask the Spirit to work to help us understand His Word and what He's done and is doing for us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to look into your Word yet again. We come humbly recognizing we need your spirit to work in our hearts and our minds through the teaching of your word so that we can know you, so we can love you more. We ask for your help this morning. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we get to review a little bit of where we've been and then we'll set an outline out for where we're going again today. We've been through bibliology, we've been through theology proper and Christology, and we are going to be finishing up pneumatology. Again, for those that haven't been here, that's the study of the Holy Spirit. So some of the resources we've been using um, are Wayne Grudem, Bible Doctrine, also Bible Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. So those are primary resources we're using. We'll have some quotes from them today and extrapolated ideas. Um, So definitely encourage you to get those resources for further study as well. But we're going to be covering, um, hopefully, Lord willing, a lot of ground today. So don't worry. If you miss any notes, um, just let me know. We can make these PowerPoints and information available via email so that you can review any information as well. So I'm excited for what we're getting to look at and to, to review a little bit where we've been over the last couple of weeks since we took a break last week to look into missions a little bit. Um, Scott took us through the person of the Spirit, and Carrie took us through the work of the Spirit, part one. So we talked about um, pre-existence of the Spirit, talking through the Old Testament and all the way up to Pentecost. And today we want to pick up that baton and continue on um, looking at what the Spirit is doing. And oftentimes this, this section is called Life in the Spirit. Uh, what does it look like as the Spirit is working in the life of the church today? So we are going to be working on that section and wanted to give you some pillars. A lot of times there's a tons of verses that come at you. But I want you to have in your mind a resource of what chapters in the Bible do I need to think about when I get questions about the Holy Spirit, or when I have questions about the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 3, 14, and 16 are pillar chapters when studying the Holy Spirit. Also Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Those are where we see the church established. Romans chapter 8 we'll talk about today. 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, especially on spiritual gifts. And Galatians chapter 5. So in your mind or in your Bibles even, you can notate, make marks that this is specific teaching on the Holy Spirit that we want to understand how the Spirit works. So today, for Life in the Spirit, we're covering over three sections is how we're categorizing it. We have salvation, we have sanctification, and we have service. And salvation is where we'll start at this morning. Salvation, we're going to break into three sections. So we keep zooming in and I keep giving you more points. But salvation, we're going to cover what regeneration looks like, what the baptism of the Spirit means, and what that looks like, and the sealing of the Spirit. And some of this stuff in salvation, we're going to get to more in depth as we go to soteriology next, study of salvation. But we wanted to make sure that we're touching on what the Spirit is doing today and how it looks or how it impacts believers. So salvation as a whole we see is in Scripture is planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and specifically applied by the Holy Spirit. So we are looking at salvation as it applies to the lives of man by the Spirit of God. And first we're going to look at 
regeneration. What is regeneration? Regeneration is what we would say the first step of salvation. This term is really good because it's crucial to our understanding of the good news and the gospel to understand that the spiritual state of every human being who has ever lived is that they are dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians 2.1 says. And we know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this idea of regeneration helps us remember that it's about people going from death to life. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may have heard it this way, is not meant to make bad people good. That would be rehabilitation. The gospel makes dead people alive. And that's why it starts with regeneration. And this is a work of the Spirit. Regeneration gives us some word pictures in Scripture. And word pictures are helpful for us when we're trying to articulate doctrines. And so we want to really lean in a little bit and review these. So regeneration in Scripture, you may have heard the spiritual birth Um, phrases you'll be familiar with is being born again, especially John chapter 3. To be born again, or literally born from above, or to be born of God. That's speaking of this idea of regeneration. There's also spiritual cleansing. Spiritual cleansing would be when we're talking about that we are filthy with sin and we need to be washed, be cleansed, being washed clean. Those ideas of scripture are talking about regeneration. Spiritual creation is another idea where there's this idea of renewal or to be made new again or to be a new creation, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. And then fourthly, another word picture we see in Scripture is spiritual resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who gives life through the Spirit. And John 1 says that life comes from God, not by the will of who? Man, right? Not by the will of man. I know, it's a curveball having you speak in the middle of Sunday school. So some verses on regeneration that are really important for us are Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and I'll read those for us. Titus 3, 4, and 5 say, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you get multiple pictures in that one verse pinpointing down what this new life looks like and how it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, And such were some of you, speaking of um, sinful characteristics of the Corinthian church. And he says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit applies regeneration to the unregenerate believer so that salvation starts. That's where it begins, is the opening of our eyes. So regeneration, what is done and how? John 16, 8 through 11 is a really helpful passage that articulates what the Spirit is actually doing to bring about regeneration. And Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit, sending the, saying that the Spirit will come, and he'll do three specific things, that he'll convict of sin, convict of righteousness, and convict of judgment. Right? He'll convict people, the world specifically, of their sin, that they are sinners. And it says that he sends the Spirit to convict of righteousness. Since Jesus has gone, he wants people to know what a holy God requires of them. And he convicts them of judgment, that there will be a a cost to be paid for their sin. The wages of sin is death. 
And these are the convictions that lead to regeneration. But how, how does this specifically work? Well, well, all three members of the Trinity make special contributions to the effort of regeneration, Scripture emphasizes that it is by the complementary interaction of two things, God's spirit with God's word. It's totally an act of God, but there are two parts that are incorporated. It is God's spirit applying God's word to our hearts. That's how regeneration happens, according to Scripture. Here's a quote from uh, MacArthur and Mayhew. It says, Regeneration is God's work of giving eternal spiritual life to people who were previously spiritually dead, but have embraced Christ by faith because of God's grace. This act of grace is caused entirely without human aid by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, producing new life in believers with a new nature, new abilities, new desires, new relationships, and new responsibilities, not temporarily, not for a long period of time, but forever. And that's the beauty of regeneration. So covering through the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, we want to jump into next the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. And what's amazing about this specific act of the Holy Spirit is it gets very confused nowadays. What does the baptism of the Spirit mean? I'm familiar with baptism. We had a baptism service. We get the water piece, and we probably think about that when we hear the word baptism. But Scripture actually speaks of a baptism from the Spirit. And although there's not a a hierarchy um, in regards to the Gospels, um, in regards to authority of Scripture, it's important for us to look for repeated themes, repeated statements. And it's interesting that all four Gospels pinpoint for us this idea of expected baptism of the Spirit. This is something that was looked forward to, and Carrie covered some ways that this actually even showed up in the Old Testament. Moses said in the book of Numbers, uh, would that God put his Spirit on all men, right? A little foreshadowing piece, and the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel of what God was going to do in this new covenant. But all four authors make this statement that the baptism of the Spirit was coming. It was something they expected to see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark says it and records it this way. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, this is John the Baptist speaking, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, uh, speaking of Jesus' baptism, says, but the one who sent me to baptize with water that's God speaking to, that's John the Baptist speaking of what God told him. And this is the statement that God said. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So this expectation was, was recorded, it was seen, and Jesus even told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 as well. He's reminding his disciples when he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this is right before when it happens, right? Right when this door of the baptism of the Spirit is opened for believers, and it's experienced um, initially at Pentecost. This is when this new act is happening. This isn't something we see in the Old Testament Um, This is something that's new for the church age and is accomplished because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
There's a specific aspect that's new here that we need to notate. And it's happening at Pentecost. You can see that in Acts chapter 2. And Peter confirms it later when others are receiving salvation. Uh, This happens simultaneously with it. And Peter's confirming in chapter 11 of Acts saying, what's happening, this salvation, this baptism of the Spirit, is exactly what happened to us. Saying that the gospel is spreading out to new peoples, new groups, not just for the Jews. So, but if we were to evaluate the baptism of the Spirit, many people will try to say, well, you see this, these miraculous signs happening in Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, and bleeds into 11, and chapter 19. So these are similar events, but we need to understand there's actually a lot of big differences, too. Um, so it's not like this is these miraculous signs and events that happened with the baptism of the Spirit as described has to happen with these sign gifts. And here's some, some observations and evaluation about those chapters. So one, none of this, um, these other repeated events um, show that there's a, a sound that is recorded, a loud rushing wind is actually recorded as a sound in Acts chapter 2, or these tongues of fire that appeared in Acts chapter 2. So none of the repeated events have those specific signs happening. The Spirit was signifying that the gospel was spreading to new groups of people just as he has planned. And when you look at the outline of Acts, you see that the goal actually is to uh, preach the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world, right? And when you look at these chapters, the people groups that are experiencing this, this sign to show that salvation is going out to the peoples is the Jews in chapter 2. In chapter 8, it's Samaria. In chapter 10, it's Caesarea. And then in Ephesus, in chapter 19, showing that um, there were people being saved that were disciples, actually, of, of John the Baptist. So you see that when you look at the historical record of just these four events, there's something specific going on that's supposed to verify the gospel going out to other people, not something that's supposed to be normative. So these were exceptions to the norm and given to historically validate and illustrate the spreading of the gospel during this unique period of transition from a God-fearing Judaism to the new covenant of Christianity. Baptism of the Spirit explained. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 is really helpful because Paul is at this point talking about the baptism of the Spirit and what it is specifically for the church. I'll read this verse for us as he explains the result, reality, resultant reality of the Spirit. Spirit baptism. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He says they're all baptized in one body, and that this is something that happens at salvation. It is a positional act. It takes place in the life of every Christian concurrently with regeneration from Pentecost forward. This is something unique and a blessing for the church that we are baptized into the Spirit. So to explain what this looks like from a scripture perspective, the baptizer would be Christ. So he actually ascended so that he could do this baptism and open this up for the church, the body of believers, starting after Pentecost. The means is the Holy Spirit. The condition is faith in Christ. The mode is that it's that we are immersed in the Holy Spirit, and the result is entrance into the universal church. A quote from MacArthur and Mayhew says, To sum it up, spirit baptism occurs when Jesus Christ, Lord of his church from Pentecost on by the Spirit, places Christians into his body, the church. At the moment a person first puts faith in Christ 
as Savior and Lord. By Christ doing so, Christians are immersed into and participate in the universal body of Christ by the Savior's sovereign will. So I wanted to review some affirmations that we would say are true in regards to the baptism of the Spirit. We would say that this is a gift, not something sought after, not something commanded. This is a gift from God. This is exclusively associated with regeneration and salvation. It's not normative to be associated with temporary signs and gifts. We see multiple times in Acts that people are getting saved without any sign gifts, and they're receiving this baptism of the Spirit. So to be consistent, we can't say, yep, if you're going to be saved, you have to show all this stuff. Those aren't um, tied together explicitly in every case. So it's not normative to be associated with those, those sign gifts. It's permanent, and it's a one-time event. It's not reversible or reoccurring. Evidence of salvation is what the baptism of the Spirit is, not a measure of spiritual maturity, which we'll talk about more. This initial blessing and enduring result of salvation, that's what it is. It's not a second working of grace or a second blessing, something that you need to work hard to achieve. It's something that happens at conversion. It's inseparably linked to salvation, and it's sovereignly initiated by Christ, not obtained by the act or work of a believer. This is an act that is provided by Christ and experienced for every believer. Believers never are told to acquire or to retain the baptism of the Spirit in Scripture. This is something that's experienced by every Christian from Pentecost to present. It includes every believer and is not limited to the mature. Freely grants entrance into the universal body of Christ and is not based on previous personal spiritual achievement. And you can see a lot of these affirmations. You can be, if you're thinking of the charismatic movement or something, or maybe you've interacted with a spirit-filled church, you're hearing in your head, oh, yeah, I've heard somebody say that. They said you need to be baptized with the Spirit. That, that hasn't happened for you yet. We don't see that in Scripture at all. This is distinct from the indwelling and filling, which we'll talk about here under sanctification, and not to be equated with either of those, as seen as equal to. So, um, although we see regeneration and baptism, um, we want to make sure that we understand that this is part of salvation, and this is part of what the Spirit does for believers. So it's not only do we see regeneration and baptism as a work of the Spirit, but we also see the sealing. Not above our heads, but the sealing like a, a seal, an imprint, right? So let's look at the sealing of the Spirit. And this is extremely encouraging for us as believers. Um, this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us security. Uh, this is a huge part of um, our salvation, our walk in the life of the Spirit, is understanding this beautiful gift. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has put his seal on us, and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit of promise is given by God as his guarantee of a believer's future inheritance. We see Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, and Romans 8 also talk about this. And Ephesians 1.13 says, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this seal identifies ownership and originator. It signifies security, protection, ownership, authority, and authenticity. 1 Corinthians says we were bought with a price. 
that indicates ownership, that we are not our own but belong to God. The Holy Spirit is the actual seal that authenticates a Christian as a child of God. And all true believers receive the seal of the Holy Spirit because of their salvation. Romans 8 verse 9 um, closes with saying, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's a very staunch and strict statement. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit. Believers are never instructed to seek for the sealing of the Spirit or to work for it. It's always assumed that they are sealed because of salvation. As a believer, sealed by God with the Holy Spirit, one salvation is granted by the authority of God and authenticated by the possession of God's own Spirit. Because they are owned by God, Christians are spiritually secure and protected by his omnipotent and invincible spiritual resources. Sealing is a huge affirmation of security and assurance for the believer. And in Ephesians 1, he continues on after speaking of being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? So this idea of guarantee in scripture is a pledge, a down payment, or a deposit. This is an immediate guarantee of receiving the ultimate promise of God, which is eternal life. Maybe those of you that have bought a house, you think of earnest money, right? A down payment or a dowry in a marriage, right? The spirit is that gift that says we are going to make this all the way to the end. And that's why Paul can say in Philippians that he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that idea of will bring it, that phrase there that Paul uses, indicates for us the next section, right? Will bring it to completion is that process of uh, sanctification. So let's look together at the Spirit's work in sanctification. So specifically, we're going to look at three sections. Again, we'll look at indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. So to... Um, remember for us, this, there's these different phrases we see in Scripture. Scripture talks about salvation in this way. He talks about past, he talks about present, he talks about future. He says it is done, it is being done, and it will be done. He talks about position. There's talk of progression and perfection, right? And then these terms that we use from, it, from man's perspective is justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we're talking about this middle section that the Spirit is working in us through sanctification. So first, let's look at the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. This specifically is a result of the baptism of the Spirit. When we're baptized into the Spirit, then the result or the fruit of that act at salvation is that we are indwelled with the Spirit. And there's some passages here that, that indicate that for us. This is a result. We need to understand that. And the simple definition, um, because indwelling is something that Carrie pointed out for us. We see even some of it in the Old Testament. Uh, The simple definition is the presence of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer. So what we want to understand is how there is distinction. So Carrie went through and showed us several passages, but I want to just delineate some points for us to review and remember side by side. So the Old Testament, we see this infrequent act of indwelling, the um, involving of selected leaders in Israel only, that it was temporary. That's a big comparison word, that it was temporary in the Old Testament. And it was an empowerment for service. 
But in contrast, we see the fruit of the baptism of the Spirit, which provides this indwelling in the New Testament for the church age, is always at salvation. It's inclusive of all believers individually, that it's permanent, not temporary, something you can lose, which comes right out of sealing and guarantee that we just talked about. It's cohesive in the collective sense of the universal church and an empowerment for holy living and fruitful service. Romans 8 is really helpful um, in understanding this concept of the New Testament um, act of the Holy Spirit in indwelling the believer. Because in verse 9, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, no one and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the security of the believer, that we are permanently indwelt with the Spirit at salvation. And this is a blessing for believers. But not only do we have indwelling, we have what's often more confused is the filling. The filling of the Holy Spirit. What does Scripture talk about when, when it means the filling of the Holy Spirit? So first I want to lay out for us some categories. Um, if you were to review um, all the passages we're talking of filling of the Spirit from Old Testament through the New, um, you'll see kind of these headers that start popping out at you if you are to categorize them. You see a Spirit-enhanced capability, or you see a Spirit-produced character. Capabilities and characters. And also you see this, this um, in the context of those passages, you see a cause and effect. You see that God, or a divine, the divine sovereign one, is the cause and the, of the filling of the Spirit. And the effect is human submission. Human submission. So there's actually three different words in the New Testament that are used for this idea of filling. And all of them convey one universal idea, which is domination or total control. And that's why we say the effect is submission. So when describing this work, the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's important that we keep in mind that Scripture sees it in this way of cause and effect of God initiating in human submission. So from the Old Testament to Pentecost, we see that really each of these fillings produced capabilities, not character. And we see that the equipping was to carry out God's specific plans and that it was unique. These were not to be repeated type of events all the way up to Pentecost. That was what the Old Testament characterized. But in the church age, we see a different model. We see that the apostles were teaching about the filling of the Spirit and what was inspected. And what was expected was actually character. It was character, not capabilities. So um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this opens up a section where he's teaching on what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit. So it's instructive for us, um, and we're just going to follow that pattern of saying maybe the nots first. What does it not mean to be filled with the, with the Spirit? So again, there's lots of uh, different denominations and practices that get this wrong, that set expectations um, that scripture does not on believers. So it's not a dramatic experience um, with suddenly being energized with a permanent state of advanced godliness or a second blessing. Um, it's also not this stoically trying to do what God wants without this holy, you know, with just asking God to bless it, basically. The Spirit just blesses it, and I'm just going to do it in my own uh, mere human act, um, looking for God's approval. That's not what this looks like in Scripture either. Um, it's not the same as possessing or being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's distinct from that. It's not describing a process of receiving the Holy Spirit progressively by degrees either. It's not, hey, I need to level up or become more enlightened. Um, God does not parcel out the Spirit 
as if he could somehow be divided into various parts. It's also not the same as being baptized by the Spirit, uh, which we read earlier. So Paul did not accuse, it's interesting, the Corinthian church of being immature and sinning because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. He actually affirmed that they were saints and that they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Rather, he reminded them that they are already possessing the Holy Spirit. He affirmed that. And then he said they were sinning not because of the absence of the Holy Spirit, but in spite of the Holy Spirit's presence, which makes it all much more worse, right? That's, that's exactly what he taught the Corinthian church. So we can't affirm that there's this losing um, of the Holy Spirit. So an important distinction is that nowhere are believers commanded or exhorted to be baptized, sealed, or indwelt. But believers are, and for this one only, commanded to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command for believers. So it's important to kind of categorize those distinctions when people are talking about these other categories. It's like, well, those aren't commanded. Those are gifts. But we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We are told to continue to be filled. We need continuously submit to the Holy Spirit's control. And we have two choices. Uh, Scripture lays out in Galatians very well. To be either filled with the flesh in unbelief or by the Spirit in salvation and sanctification. So being filled is meant to authenticate. You'll hear that word a lot. It's meant to authenticate one's genuine salvation by allowing God's will to prevail in obedience both to Scripture's teaching and to the Holy Spirit's direction. So how does this work? Again, Galatians 5 is very helpful for us in talking about not grieving not quenching the Spirit by our sin. Also, we're told to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. Maybe you've heard the phrase, um, walking or being filled with the Spirit is not um, getting more of the Spirit, but it's the Spirit getting more of you, right? You've you've heard that idea before. It's, It's submitting to the indwelling of the Spirit. And it's God's Word applied by the Spirit's empowerment so that the Christian can walk in obedience. So some confirmations about it. Um, The chief characteristic of one's salvation and subsequent sanctification is an ongoing, habitual, growing obedience to God's word that is empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who controls the lifestyle of a true Christian. Ephesians 5 continues in describing this uh, spirit's ministry and work in the life of a Christian. It says it controls our conversations, our speech. Uh, It produces gratitude Regardless of circumstances, it produces humility in relationships. Husbands and wives are talked about, parents, children, employers, employees. This is what the filling of the Spirit does. And in parallel passages, we see the same fruit being taught about in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Peter and in Galatians. So those who are Spirit-filled will seek to please God by pursuing practical holiness. And that leads us to the third section on sanctification. The third section is fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The result of that pursuit is the fruit. It's fun to rhyme with fruit. Fruit comes after the root, right? Fruit comes after the root. Order matters. Fruit authenticates and reveals the character of a tree. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Awesome. Galatians 3 through 5 and Ephesians 5 are key passages in understanding Scripture's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. This uh, Spirit-produced fruit can be defined as Christian thinking and living in obedience to Scripture that honors 
God. This is saintly living produced by the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's interesting in this passage that fruit is actually a singular in the Greek. And believers are actually meant to be manifesting all of these elements simultaneously. So the shorthand in scripture for the fruit of the Spirit is, um, other uh, New Testament authors will say, the fruit of righteousness. These nine representative qualities are the Spirit's sanctifying labor in the life of one who has been made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to just read for us these definitions because I think we know the words. We've probably got it memorized. We teach it to our kids. Uh, But it would be helpful for us to just be washed over a little bit, I think, with the definitions of what the fruit of the Spirit is. So first, let's talk about love. And this is just a definition. These are, these are going to be quotes. The conscience, the conscious, sacrificial, and willful commitment to the greatest good of another person in obedience to God's word, regardless of that person's response or what one does or does not receive from him or her or what love costs to give. That's what love is. And it is actually the most frequent one another command that we find in Scripture Joy is defined as happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. Joy is a deep, abiding, inner thankfulness to God for his goodness and what is not diminished or interrupted. Um, Joy can't be diminished, should not be diminished or interrupted when less than desirable circumstances intrude on one's life. What about peace? Peace is an inner calm that results from confidence in one's saving relationship with Christ. It is beyond human understanding and not based on our circumstances. Peace results in an ordered, settled, and undisturbed response to whatever life brings one's way. Peace is rooted in our relationship with Christ. Patience. Patience involves self-restraint and is a part of love. It's self-restraint that does not retaliate reactively it endures injuries inflicted by others without the need for revenge and willingly accepts irritating or painful situations it can rightly be called long suffering thinking about my parenting here kindness kindness is expressed as tender gentle concern for others that actively seeks out ways to serve them. How about goodness? Goodness exhibits an actively determined capacity to deal with people in the best interest of God's glory, even when confrontation and correction are required. That's what goodness looks like. How about faithfulness? Faithfulness is an inner commitment to consistently express an outward loyalty that remains true to one's spiritual convictions. What about gentleness? Sometimes translated meekness refers to controlled strength expressed by humble hearts. Strength used for good, not for evil. Attitudes that scripture describes of gentleness are submission to the will of God, teachability, 
and consideration of others. And lastly, self-control. Self-control can be described as an inward restraint of appetites and passions, resulting in a spiritual mastery that submits consistently to the greater cause of God's will, not man's. This is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. It's one fruit, and that's a high bar that we can't meet on our own. Like When you think through those definitions... If you're like me, you're thinking of failure after failure, and confession is a right response, and conviction of the Spirit, and to realize I need to be filled with the Spirit to show this sort of fruit in my life, to glorify God and to bless others in the church. So, observations on the fruit of the Spirit. Teaching in the Scripture is addressed to all true believers as basic to the Christian life. So, if you're teaching a five-year-old, or a 55-year-old. This is basic for any Christian. These qualities are commanded in the context of the charge by Paul to walk by the Spirit. These Spirit-enabled qualities represent communicable attributes of God, which we've talked about in this class, that are authenticating marks of Christian godliness. The fruit in this passage is singular, not plural. So Paul intended it to be understood as one fruit with multiple characteristics that should be reflected at any given time. These fruitful traits certify the authenticity of a genuine Christian in contrast to the spoils of the flesh which condemn unbelievers. So we've gone through salvation and sanctification and we're at our third section for service. So more specifically, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. So as an overview... Um, If you compare the Old Testament and the New, you see these categories of gifts of word and gifts of deed. In the Old Testament, there were a few select people empowered by the Spirit for spiritual service. And in the New Testament, it's it's different. It's every believer is gifted to serve in the body of Christ, the church. So key passages on spiritual gifts would be 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, uh, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, these give us the the summary of lists. There's like seven different lists. Um, And since they're distinct and different, they're not meant to be comprehensive, right? It's not supposed to cover these are the X amount. Uh, But they're supposed to be indicators for us of what sort of gifts the Spirit is doing in the life of a believer for the church. So some observations about the gifts of the Spirit. Salvation is a gift. That it, that it is undeserved gift by God's grace. The Holy Spirit also is a gift, an undeserved gift of God's grace. Like spirit baptism, spiritual gifts accompany salvation. God's will, not human will, determines individual giftedness. Spiritual gifts are permanent and irrevocable. Spiritual gifts received with salvation should be distinguished from natural talents possessed by a physical birth. However, the Spirit can certainly use both kinds of giftedness for his own divine purposes. Spiritual giftedness alone does not necessarily make a Christian spiritually mature, and that's demonstrated by the Corinthian church, right? We saw there were these gifts and signs going on, but they were completely immature, so they're not synonymous. Giftedness and maturity. All Christians are gifted without exception and can have more than one gift, resulting in a unique combination, potentially. The Holy Spirit produces a variety of gifts for Christians to employ in a variety of ministries with a variety of outcomes. 
So there's not this one shoe fits all, let's get all of our mercy gifts over here, let's get all of our um, you know, gifts of giving over here, pastoral gifts over here. You're not going to slice people up that way. Gifts are to be exercised in love, because without love, the practice of giftedness is useless. Gifts differ according to God's grace given and are to be ministered by Christians as good stewards of God's grace. The primary purpose of permanent gifts is for the edification of the church. The primary use, I'm going to say it again, of permanent gifts is for the edification of the church. That's the purpose. The fruitful exercise of one's giftedness brings God's, God glory. So we are to glorify God by edifying the church. That is the purpose. And if we get the purpose wrong, um, you're sure to fall off the horse in regards to spiritual gifts. So um, temporary gifts that we see um, in the New Testament, we see revelatory gifts and confirmatory gifts. So these gifts um, serve both of those purposes in authenticating God's special messenger and the inauguration of a new covenant era. They were meant to authenticate God's primary purpose for miracles he worked through men with temporary giftedness was to authenticate his messengers as bearing a true revelation from God. It was supposed to verify something. This was true for both the temporary revelatory gifts and the temporary confirmatory gifts. And we see primary passages in Acts 2, 2 Corinthians 12, and Hebrews 2 as well. So God used this same method in the Old Testament with his prophets to distinguish between true and false prophets. Think of Elijah, right? He's, he's going to battle, and they can't make anything happen on the altar, and he prays, and God rains down fire to verify the message of the, and the messenger, um, God's message through Elijah. Peter testifies that miracles are meant to validate the messenger. So this is a teaching from an apostle, that that's what miracles were for. Paul directly connects miracles to the apostles to validate their message. So we see Paul saying the same thing. And the author of Hebrews says that God bore witness to true salvation through the apostles by miracles. So we see this this purpose of miracles, revelatory and confirmatory, to to validate the messenger. It's interesting, um, John the Baptist, um, Jesus says of him that there is none greater. And it actually says in the book of John, he records that John the Baptist did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. So Jesus says he's the greatest, and he never did a sign to validate or affirm anything. So a lot of times what happens is the stature of a man of God is, is said to be evidenced by signs and miracles, but that's not what Scripture teaches. They're validated by the truthfulness of their message. That's how they're validated especially now since we have canon clothes. So the view of cessationism is that God is not performing, and that we teach here and believe we see in scriptures, that God is not performing these signed gifts and miracles through men after 95 AD when the canon was closed because he no longer was revealing new truth that needed authenticated. There is no single explicitly clear biblical statement that specifies whether miracles through men um, and temporary gifts ceased with the apostles or that they continued. But if we see the whole counsel of Scripture, we will find the one answer. So in, if we look at it from a timeline standpoint, Acts 19 is really a stopping point when you see these miraculous gifts. And that's, from a timeline standpoint, about 52 A.D. In 1 Corinthians, that letter, you see some signed gifts, and that's 55 A.D. And even in Romans, which is 56 A.D. And we see these writings of extraordinary miracles. But by 60 A.D., Paul was saying to the church at Philippi that he didn't heal Epaphroditus, 
Paul's prescribing wine for Timothy's upset stomach and ailment in 62 AD. And Trophimus is left sick by Paul at Miletus in 66 AD in 2 Timothy. So we see that the instruction of the apostles is not go to the church and get, find people with these gifts and get, get yourself healed up so you can do more work of the ministry. He's saying, nope, we're not, that's not the instruction here. So there seems to be something that changes, even in the teaching of Scripture. So these, these gifts or offices, which Scripture um, puts side by side often, that we would say have ceased after the apostolic era, era of transition into the church era would be the uh, office of an apostle, distinguishing between spirits, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Gifts that we would say have continued based on what we see evidence in scripture and um, in everyday life. Gifts and offices would be the evangelist, exhorting, faith, giving, helping, serving, leading, administrating, mercy, preaching, shepherding, spiritual discernment, and teaching. These are gifts for, uh, from the Holy Spirit to believers for the church. That's the purpose. So some quick questions for us. How can Christians identify spiritual giftedness? So quick short summary, you got to get involved in the church. That's the bullet point. If you want to know what your gifted is, giftedness is by the Spirit, if the gift is for the church, that's where it's going to be manifested. So are you seeking opportunities to serve? And do you know what the needs are here at Redemption Hill? Are you, if you're not getting involved, then, then you probably do have this question mark, like how has the Lord gifted me for the church? So the, the best way to find out is to get involved and to serve. It's not like, oh, I think I have the gift of mercy, but we don't have a mercy ministry. It's like, no, go get involved in serving in nursery or children's church or with the youth group or in Sunday school, whatever it is. And you'll find that out by interacting with the church body. And the church body actually affirms and confirms. I had a brother the other day say something about how I was serving, and it was like, oh, I didn't even think that that was kindness. Al was telling me, he's like, man, that was just the Lord working through you in kindness. I was like, I didn't even think of it. Didn't even think of it. And it's a blessing to say, oh, you know, this is what God's doing when we're filled with the Spirit and we're just desiring to be used by him for his glory to serve and edify the church. So what is the purpose of our gifts? It's to edify the church by building up. And First Corinthians 14, three times Paul says, building up the church, edifying the church. That's what it's for. And if we forget the goal, then we'll obviously think it's about us. So giftedness, the gifts that the Spirit gives, think of it this way. It's not about you being the recipient. The gift recipient is the church. So we need to get ourselves out of the way and let the Spirit work through us um, so that we're not um, seeking to be proud. So 1 Peter 4, um, 10 is a helpful verse for us to, to make sure that we're not pursuing self-edification or self-exercise or self-exaltation. So everything the Spirit does is to reveal and glorify Jesus Christ. So if you can't remember all these works that the Spirit has done, remember this litmus test. If, if somebody says, man, that was really of the Spirit or God was really moving it's like, well, if Christ wasn't glorified, uh-uh. That's not what we see in Scripture. So if you get one thing, if man is trying to make much of himself, that's not the Spirit at work. But when man in the church is working together to glorify God, to make much of salvation through Jesus Christ, that is when the Spirit is at work. Whether it's regeneration, baptism, sealing and dwelling, filling, bearing fruit and spiritual gifts, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus, and that's the Spirit's main work. So we will finish up next week with pneumatology Q&A. If you have questions, please do email them to us. We would love to address those or come with them, and we'll be able to discuss those. Quick instruction for parents, please make sure to go pick up your kids as I went a little long. 
And we have a new lost and found that's accruing on the lost and found book coat rack. So if you've left anything, feel free to go check there. Otherwise, you guys are dismissed, and we'll be back in 12 minutes for worship service.